This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Chapel, Mike's wife, Chad and Chelsea's mother, my mother's daughter. <laughs> Just always wanted a good job and to follow the rules. And I was a straight A student. I wanted to be a wife and mother very young, but Mike and I didn't meet till we were 21. And four months later, we were married. I was working at a convenience store and he came in there one day on the way home from work. I was in college. He was all dirty from work and construction, and I took one look at him. I said, I'm going to marry him. We've been married 41 years this July. When I began this project, I wanted to get to know more about who Michael Chapel really is, and who better to ask than his wife, who has chosen to stand by his side and remain married to him for the past 29 years that he's been in prison. I asked Aaron what it was that attracted her so much to Mike at first. He's tall, I love tall. He was muscular, he's a bodybuilder, was an amateur bodybuilder. Very witty, very funny, very entertaining. And I mean, who doesn't wanna be around laughter and joy all the time? That was it for me. Perfect looks, perfect demeanor, perfect thought process, just we match on so many levels it has to be God-ordained. There's no explanation for the match that he made except that. Listening to Aaron talk, you almost forget that she's speaking about a man who's in prison for murder. We got married in July of 1981, and it wasn't long after that he went to work for DeKalb SO, Sheriff's Office. Gwinnett County PD headhunted him from there which is ironic because they were trying to get all these bodybuilder type, you know, tall cops recruited from all over. For the next several years, things were good. Their small family was growing. With the addition of son Chad and daughter Chelsea, Mike and Aaron opened Mike's Gym, which would later be renamed to Iron World. And his career as a police officer was off to a solid start as he began to accumulate commendation after commendation for outstanding service. He even worked part-time in a Longhorn Steakhouse a few nights a week after his police shift ended to bring in a little extra money for the family. It was just normal, small-town life. But the night of April 15, 1993, changed everything. The chapel's world would forever be altered with the murder of Emma Jean Thompson. We went to bed one night and something was on the news about it. I said, well, because it was Buford where he his zone was, I said, well, what happened with this? And he said, it was probably her dirtbag crack addict son. You know, this 
53-year-old grandmother was shot and killed. I mean, it was a brief discussion. And I remember thinking, how sad, you know, that people on drugs do all these crazy things. I didn't know anything about it. And I wasn't making a judgment. He wasn't either. He just, logically to him, that fit. So that was, as soon as it happened, we discussed it briefly. And then a few days later, he didn't come home one night. In all the years we were married, 12 and a half years, he's never not come home. I woke up and he was supposed to get off his part-time job at Longhorns at midnight and he didn't come home. And I called Longhorns and they're like, well, he didn't show up. I said, what? I mean, none of this is like him. Called the gym, he wasn't there. We owned a gym at the time. Erin's anxiety began to build. It was very much out of character for her husband to not come home or to not call if he'd be late. Her mind raced. Was Mike hurt? Had something gone wrong on a police call? Was he dead? I knew that wasn't what it was. He wasn't hurt. He wasn't shot. He wasn't in a hospital. I don't know how I knew, but I knew. So I go looking for him. I went to the gym. He wasn't there. I went in the gym, called my mother from the landline. I said, he's not here. She said, where do you think he is? Come home, Aaron. I said, no, something's wrong. I'm not coming home. I was at the gym and the Northside Precinct was down the street from the gym. So I, I rode by the precinct and saw his truck in the back lot. So I started banging on the doors. And it's, I don't know, one, two in the morning. And you know, they, you know, people are there that are up all night. They wouldn't come to the door. I said, wow, something big's up. I went next door at the Waffle House. I called headquarters. I said, this is Aaron Chapel. What have you done with my husband? Oh, Miss Chapel, hold on. Five minutes later, they come back. Well, we're going to send a car to your house in about an hour. And we're going to talk. I said, oh, no, you're not. I'll be there in your face in 10 minutes. Get ready. Aaron arrived at police headquarters frantic and upset, wanting some kind of answer as to her husband's whereabouts. They put me in this room. They make me wait, I don't know, 30 minutes. They said, well, he's been arrested. I said, what is he arrested for? Well, murder. So they start telling me a little bit, you know, a 53-year-old grandmother on the side of the road. I said, for what? For money. I said, was he at work? Yeah. Was it his service? Well, we can't reveal that right yet. I said, listen to yourself. What are you saying? That he murdered somebody on the side of the road in uniform in front of God and everybody? I was just like, something ain't right about all this. Hearing this just didn't line up with the Michael Chapel she had married. It didn't make sense. I mean, he's, it, it, the boy doesn't even get traffic tickets. I'm in shock. I'm like, he's a Boy Scout, for God's sakes. I know this man. And I'm thinking, what am I going to tell my mother? What am I going to tell his parents? This is craziness. This is so much bigger than anything we've ever dealt with before. Before Aaron had a chance to really process what was happening, she was faced with the difficult task of telling her children that their father wasn't coming home. I said, look, I need to talk to you about something. Your dad's been arrested. 
but we're going to figure this out. He's going to be out soon. Everything's going to be okay. They're just sitting there like, I mean, he's like Superman. He's a hero, you know. And I could see their little faces, but I knew they can't hear this somewhere else. They can't see this on the news. They can't listen to kids say this to them. I have to tell them so that they feel safe about it on some level. Eventually, the tough exterior that Erin displayed for her children would shatter as her new reality began to set in. Oh my God, it was horrible. I cried literally, I'm not kidding, all day, all night, for six months running. It did not stop. I don't know what to do. And I'm just ripped in half. I'm sitting here, God, how am I gonna comfort these children and help my husband and run the ship? How am I gonna do this? That's my right arm. He's my best friend. He's my everything. A lot of it's a blur emotionally, but I remember you have to turn off the emotion. You have to push it down, the anger. You have to, you know, take care of the children. One particular visit with Mike shortly after his conviction has been etched into Aaron's memory. It was something Mike said to his 11-year-old son, Chad. I've only seen my husband in 41 years shed tears two times. He was sentenced, and the children and I went to see him in Gwinnett County Jail before they shipped him to the diagnostic prison to see where he was going to do his time. So we were in the little, you know, on this side of the glass, the little room, and he's on the other side. And it was so heart-wrenching. He said, can you ladies step outside for a moment? I said, sure. I said, come on, baby. And we stepped outside and I could still hear them. You can shut the door, but I could still hear them. And I looked in the window and I just had Chelsea by the hand, but Chad's sitting there, he's crying. And Mike had a big tear come out of his eye and he said, son, I want you to understand this. I'm not leaving you. They're taking me from you. I'm not leaving you. They're taking me. Do you understand that? And Chad just was boohooing because he didn't understand what that really meant. He said, but you'll still be able to see me and you'll still be able to talk to me, but I'm not leaving you. I want you to take care of your mom and your sister because he wanted to build him up. That was heart-wrenching. I'm Sean Cunn. From Imperative Entertainment, this is In the Land of Lies. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. The case that shocked the world and now it has exploded into a city out of control. Fires, looting, gunshots, random beating attacks and now... But there is violence in the wake of the acquittal of four white police officers accused of using excessive force in the videotaped beating of Rodney King. I feel that the great travesty of justice. I feel that the jury in Simi Valley gave the okay to continue to abuse and oppress and suppress black people in this country. By early February 1993, just two months prior to Emma Jean Thompson's murder, police officers across America were under heavy scrutiny due to the infamous videotaped beating of Rodney King at the hands of LAPD officers two years prior. The highly publicized acquittal of those officers at trial would ignite one of the worst riots in our country's history and forever change the landscape of how law enforcement was viewed by the general public. It's during this time that one of the more bizarre news stories in George's history would break. And it's an important story to hear and understand because Michael Chappell would eventually play a part in it, whether he liked it or not. This is where you really start getting into the kind of almost unbelievable rabbit holes, if you will. And this is going to sound crazy when I say it to you, um, but it's absolutely true. There was a group of dirty cops operating in the South Metro Atlanta area. They literally called themselves the WBAC, White Boys Against Crime. It was a group of cops in Fulton County, Riverdale, in the Atlanta Police Department that all worked out at a gymnasium down in Fayetteville, Georgia, Gold's Gym, actually. And uh, they worked out with a bunch of guys that were bouncers and general managers at strip clubs and other bars around the Atlanta area. The White Boys Against Crime was a group of men that included two SWAT team members, two Atlanta police officers, a Fulton County Sheriff's deputy, three strip club bouncers and managers, and one very tenacious dog trainer, who also happened to be a regular at a club called the Gold Rush Show Bar. They robbed a Walmart, they robbed a Home Depot, they robbed several nightclubs. They actually followed home the owners of these nightclubs and then robbed their safes. And over the course of 91 to early 1993, these guys perpetrated some 20 to 25 major burglaries or armed robberies in the South Metro Atlanta area. The White Boys Against Crime members were performing armed robberies at grocery and convenience stores, a movie theater, auto parts and hardware stores, including a Home Depot hit that raked them in over $30,000 though most of the money they looted came from robbing safes, as Henry mentioned. And this is where the muscle was needed most, because they wouldn't crack the safe open where it sat, taking out the cash. They would instead cart it away to be opened later. According to an article in the Los Angeles Times, 
One safe stolen from a convenience store weighed 450 pounds and was carried out like it was a sack of potatoes. By early 1993, the string of robberies was still a mystery, but police were working diligently to crack the case. Investigators had begun to work off the theory that the men responsible might be ex-military due to the precision with which the crimes were carried out. They also worked off the theory that there might also be law enforcement working on the inside. There was a task force that had been created in the metro area that in early 1993 began to include the FBI because, you know, this crime spree was becoming a major problem in the metropolitan area. The task force's investigation would continue for months, though they were no closer to unmasking the small criminal enterprise. But luck inevitably would prove to be on their side as it all came to a head on the night of February 10th, 1993, with the attempted robbery of a man named Henry Jeffcoat. 50-year-old Henry Lamar Jeffcoat was the owner of the Gold Rush Show Bar, a high-end strip club in Atlanta. On the cold February evening, just before midnight, Jeffcoat climbed into his long, shiny Cadillac with the night's takeaway cash, which he would secure in the iron safe at his home, like he'd always done, until it could be deposited in the bank the next morning. What Jeffcoat didn't know is that part-time security guard and off-duty sheriff's deputy William Moclair was watching from a nearby payphone. When Jeffcoat pulled out, Moclair called two off-duty SWAT team members he was working with, Jim Bob Batzel and Mark McKenna, and the ill-fated chain of events began. They followed him home and uh, laid in wait for him. As the Cadillac pulled into the garage, two men slipped in under the closing door and confronted Jeffcoat, who immediately activated an alarm he had installed in his car that would alert the police department that he was in trouble, a precaution he took due to the fact that he often carried large amounts of money with him from the gold rush to his home. Jeffcoat made it out of the car after grabbing his revolver, and an Old West-style shootout ensued in a hail of bullets. Jim Bob Batzel shot him in the back nine times with his service weapon. Before Jeffcoat died from the nine bullets lodged in his back, he managed to land one of the rounds he fired squarely in McKenna's face. They were now trapped inside the garage, with McKenna bleeding profusely and in agonizing pain. The men knew they had mere minutes before police would arrive. The barrage of gunshots surely awoke the neighbors. They had to get out. But as part of Jeffcoat's security system, the large garage door wouldn't raise. So they began to kick a hole in it large enough to escape through. They then, you know, made their escape and their escape driver was uh, off-duty Fulton County Sheriff's deputy. They escaped the scene, but that, you know, really brought the heat down on this crime spree. Henry Jeffcoat was dead, and Mark McKenna had a gunshot wound in his jaw to deal with. Well, they couldn't take him to the hospital because, you know, here they are, police officers. This dude's been shot in the face. Half his face is blown off. And, you know, none of them, I mean, they've got, you know, minor medical training, but they're not, you know, they're not paramedics. They're not doctors but they're trying to nurse the guy back to health at Jim Bob Batzel's apartment using, 
you know, gauze bandages and peroxide that they bought at the CVS. Having escaped from the scene, Batzel and McKenna now faced another problem. The shots fired into Jeffcoat's back were from Batzel's service weapon. They knew it would be a matter of time before forensics matched the bullets to his gun, and they would be found out. So he goes to his department and files a theft charge and says somebody stole his SWAT gear out of his vehicle. Meanwhile, McKenna was in excruciating pain. He called in sick to work for several days, but quickly began to realize that he couldn't hide this forever. Even if he could manage to heal himself, it would take time, and eventually he would have to go back to the station. How would he explain the bullet hole in his face? Mark McKenna called the Clayton County Police Department and said, look, if you guys will take the death penalty off the table and get me medical treatment, I'll tell you everything. And McKenna did. He came clean on the entire operation and its members. So now they've got a profile. They know it's these big corn-fed white boys. They were all hopped up on steroids and amphetamine. They literally, the Atlanta press started calling them the roid raging cops. Not only did this bungled robbery turned murder spell the end of the white boys against crime, it would shed light on the fact that police officers all over the country were abusing steroids. And the number of police brutality cases was simultaneously going up, partially due to roid rage episodes. Off the top, this veteran Kalamazoo police sergeant embroiled in a steroid scandal, resigning Society. his post. Steroid use and abuse affects the thin blue line as well. We learned that six Green New reports. York City police officers are being investigated for steroid use. They see it in police brutality cases and other problems. They really show us. Batzel would later testify that on the night of the Jeffcoat murder, he was in a roid rage. At the time of his arrest, he was approximately 298 pounds with 2% body fat. With Batzel and McKenna arrested and quickly confessing to the whole operation in order to avoid the death penalty, numerous other participants in the crime ring would be arrested as well. And investigators now had a full profile to work off of to find any other members of local law enforcement that might also secretly be involved. They think, hey, there may be cops all over in the metro area involved in this. So they start going to all of these other internal affairs departments. They say, hey, we're looking for, you know, big buff white guys, SWAT team, ex-military, maybe possibly using steroids and or other amphetamines. And we need to look at every tactical style crime that has taken place in the last couple of years. Muscular cops with tactical or military backgrounds. Sound familiar? Well, it did to Gwinnett County Police, too. So Gwinnett County says, well, hey, we got a guy that fits that profile to a T. Because they all thought Mike was doing steroids. He was six foot seven, 290 pounds, a buff white boy. And he was on the SWAT team or had been on the SWAT team. Delta Drug Force, and a former Marine Corps. Outdoorsmen, you know, they were all like bow hunters and stuff like that. Mike fit the profile to a T, except for one minor detail. He'd never been on steroids. Just weeks before the murder of Emma Jean Thompson, Chapel was secretly being profiled to see if he might be connected to the crime ring dubbed 
steroid-abusing killer cops by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. They were also trying to connect Chapel to an armored car heist in which they believed police were involved. He fit the white boys against crime mold physically, but in the end, there would be no evidence to tie Chapel to the group in any way. And Batsell and McKenna would implicate everyone else they worked with, while also claiming they didn't even know Chapel. Mike was later tested for drugs and steroids, and the results came back negative. At the same time the task force hit a dead-end investigation of Chapel, he was conducting secret investigations of his own, not on the white boys against crime, but on several fellow police officers at the Gwinnett County Police Department. Officers he believed were involved in drug trafficking. Everyone, it seemed, was watching everyone. He knew there was some drug dealing going on. You know, he was part of the Delta Drug Force, so he was trying to get to the bottom of it. If there were members of the Gwinnett County Police Department dealing in drugs, he he felt an obligation to, you know, to deal with that. Chappell kept detailed intel files of his investigations, including audio and video recordings of informants he received information from. He kept enough of these files that other officers would frequently come to him for information on perps they were investigating. But when the names of officers within the Gwinnett County police ranks started coming up more frequently, he kept those files strictly between himself and his captain, Captain Cantrell. You know, Mike was kind of famous for having all of these intel files. He recorded conversations with all of his snitches and, you know, different people that he came in contact with. I I think within the police department, they knew it, but uh, people outside of the police department didn't know. But he had his patrol car wired for sound. He switched into the new patrol car in early 93, so he hadn't had it wired up like he had the previous one. He crawled in the woods around, you know, Cracktown doing surveillance. He also kept files and film and audio cassettes. Mike was aware that perhaps some of the officers within GCPD were connected to the drug trade that was occurring in Gwinnett County. There was a lot of cocaine being flown into and landed at a secret airport around Lake Lanier, and they were essentially transporting massive amounts of narcotics through Gwinnett County and, you know, off to other places within Georgia, Atlanta, and some Gwinnett County officers were alleged to have been involved in that. I think it didn't start as gathering information on officers. I don't think that was Mike's initial intent. I think, you know, Mike was part of the Delta Drug Force. He was part of drug interdiction. And so he was working his beat. He was working the informants within his beat. Chapel's regular beat was in Buford, whose town council had actually requested that Chapel be assigned to that area permanently because residents saw him as a good, kind officer who actually cared what happened in their small community. He was even known as the officer who gave out bubblegum to impoverished kids. I think the Buford that you know we see today, which is a kind of a chic, urban, up-and-coming you know part of the metro is very different than the Buford of of the early 90s and the late 80s. 
There was a lot of drug activity, you know, a lot of crack, meth, you know, marijuana. It's kind of a high crime area for, for a small town. And then as the Mall of Georgia and other big things started coming to that part of Gwinnett County, the population growth had just exploded. So Mike was just doing his job. In the midst of doing that job, links started coming back to certain officers and he began to realize that certain officers were dirty. He talked to Captain Cantrell about his concerns about some of these things. Captain Cantrell was someone that Mike trusted wholeheartedly. He was even trying to help Cantrell's wayward, drug-addicted son get back on the right path through Iron World Gym, but apparently to no avail. His son was known as Peanut. He is a convicted meth and crack dealer. And at that time, he was known to be a crack user. And he was somebody who had at one time joined Mike's gym. Mike was trying to help him get his life straightened out. Mike says that both Peanut's wife and his mother contacted Mike and thanked him for trying to help Peanut because, you know, Peanut was just kind of on the, the wrong path. Um, but we learn from our investigation and from, you know, a source that Peanut was actually involved in the drug trafficking to a greater degree than I think we ever realized. The source Henry is referring to had something to say about the corruption in Gwinnett County at the time and about Michael Chappell. His name is Steve Mitchell. What's the difference between a porcupine and a BMW? A porcupine's got the pricks on the outside. From the minute I met this man, I knew he was not your average Joe. You know, you might see me in a nice suit, detailed out, and then you might see me a day later looking like a homeless person. Steve Mitchell is a polite, eccentric, yet highly intelligent man in his early 70s. He's lived in the Buford area his entire life, and up until the late 80s, owned a shop that specialized in building race cars called Street Magic. He's lived a very interesting life. He was a competition marksman, a Department of Corrections officer, and received an honorable discharge from the Special Forces, though he'll never tell you much about that. Honorable discharge from the Special Forces. I never would ever work. I never got, you'll never find no place where I've been trained with martial arts, never, uh, never trained to shoot, uh, never trained by the military, never trained by any other government. Nobody. You won't find that stuff anywhere, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. Is that what you're telling me? No, I, I, uh, <laughs> I read a lot of books. <laughs> you dog, you, you make an investigative reporter. Mitchell also obtained his private investigator certification in 1980, something that would prove to be a great skill set in the time to come. He began to notice unusual activity around street magic. Well, the surveillance, I kept seeing bad things happening. You'd drive down the road and you know, you know, back then it was small town, you know, so you know where the crack houses were or whatever. There's one place, Friday, There'd be cars backed up nine deep buying crack and two guys selling it right there in the back of, of Buford and everybody knowed about it. And I was saying, you know, like one well, of the top salesmen there, Jerry Brown Chevrolet <laughs> buying crack. And I'm like, oh shit, <laughs> you know? So, but the bottom line is you kept seeing this stuff, seeing this stuff and 
and then you'd see the cops drive by and nothing happened. Mitchell began surveillance on several local crack houses and high traffic areas he suspected might be part of a larger drug ring. Police seemed to be aware of all this, yet nothing was done about it. Sometimes parked in his car with a telephoto lens on his camera, other times hiding in the bushes or in trees wearing a sniper's ghillie suit, he watched and listened. He had cameras mounted around his garage and in his car, and he used highly sensitive phased array directional microphones to pick up conversations from a great distance. He also noticed a lot of unusual activity around a warehouse situated near Street Magic. He told me about all this when Henry and I visited him at his home, which is really more of a small compound, complete with a shooting range. Even today, you're being monitored on audio and video from every angle on his property, at all times. Steve Mitchell was a bit hesitant to speak with me at first, and we more or less just chatted as I followed him around with a microphone, which is why the audio sounds the way it does. Who else you know has got the surveillance equipment I got, and I can carry up there and show you ghillie suits. You don't know how bad it is to... I used to go by the little convenience store and buy, you know, those little animals you, when you was a kid. Well, now you're not old enough, but well, it was a big deal. It was a little foam capsule and you put it in water yeah, and it swelled up. I'd put it in in the Ziploc bags and then you could pee in it and it wouldn't drain out and get on you. So you just lay in video and, you know, the crack houses and the cops pulling up and everything. And then I got a thermal scope, rifle scope, and you could tell when it pulled off, the tires had cooled down and there'd be hot patches, you know, in the road. So you could tell, forensically, you, you, you could confirm that the length of the video was equal to the uh, thermal signature that you was videoing. Basically, Steve Mitchell saw so much drug activity in the area and noticed that not only were police not doing anything about it, but seemed to be in on it. He couldn't resist putting his skills and equipment to good use. But on one particular evening, Mitchell was working alone in the garage at Street Magic when he received an unexpected visit. I'm working there and I always listen to Golden Oldies and I advertise with them, Street Magic, blah, blah, blah. You know, Captain Cantrell comes up in his unmarked car, pulls right up in front of the doors. I walk out and I say, how you doing? He is mad as hell. I mean, the boy is smoking. And he says, so, what are you doing here? I was like, I work here, you know, I own this place. Well, first he says, you can't be here. You got to close up. I says, nope. No, it's after business hours. I says, look at the door. Must be some under misunderstanding. Uh, where's business hours posted? You know, that's as nice as I know to be. I, could, I didn't feel that way, but, you know, how dare this guy? He goes, I don't care. Anytime you're here after business hours, and business hours is no later than six. You're to call the precinct and report it. And I was like, no, I hadn't sold you part of this business. You're nobody. He got really mad then. I'm talking about like spitting mad. Keep in mind, this is a police captain Mitchell's talking about here. And think about this. He's being told what hours he can and cannot operate his business. He says, uh, no, you'll do what I say. And I was like, no, sir. You will or you're a dead man. I said, okay. I can understand that, that phrase. So I stepped back one large step from the door. 
I says, get out of the car and I will see you make me dead. And he didn't. I says, so what you're gonna do is, you're gonna back out of here and one of your people that work for you, you're gonna chew them out for no good reason. But you are not gonna get out of the car and uh, show me how I'm gonna die. And he backs out, squirrels the turtle, but takes off. Mitchell got the sense that he was now, for some reason, on Captain Lewis Cantrell's radar, though he couldn't figure out why. When a body was found dumped in the bushes near his shop not long after this encounter, Mitchell wondered if he was being warned or threatened. He decided to report the altercation with Cantrell to the police department. And, well, he never came back for more, but I went to High Hope Road to ask to speak to someone. He says, what do you need? And I says, well, Captain Cantrell says that I'm a dead man. He threatened me, so I need to know, to defend myself, do I need to wait until he kills me or until he tries to kill me or when he says he's going to kill me? So I need some, you know, I need some advice. They did not want to hear what I had to say, but I asked them, I asked them that question, but the, what it said was, you can't ask those kind of questions. I said, yes, I can. Mitchell felt he must be onto something with his surveillance. Why else would Cantrell, a police captain, have confronted him the way he did and make threats on his life, as he alleges? Then he started to try to build a logic, and then the cop cars was always at the back of the, the Boney Allen building there, there in the corner. And part of the times, there wouldn't even be nobody in there you know, in the cars, you know. And then all of a sudden, 30 minutes later, they'd leave or something. You know, you're, you're trying to figure out, what did I do? I mean, how in the world did I piss this guy off? Enough to threaten your life. I don't know about you, I don't like being pushed. I'm really nice about things. But, you know, I got standards too. And I, may, I, I really am careful about my ego, you know. How could you be misunderstood? How could this happen, you know? And when you look at all these different directions and uh, brain, trying to brainstorm and trying to come up with some logical reason. You're probably thinking that a man hiding in the bushes, wearing a sniper's ghillie suit, peering through a thermal scope in town is good cause for concern. And you might be right. But clearly, Steve Mitchell felt he was on to something. It wasn't long after when he met Michael Chappell when he enrolled in a membership at his Iron World gym, seeking a constructive outlet for the stress he was feeling from a recent divorce. He said, this is a speech he gives everybody. You can come as many times as you want to or not at all. I don't care. Just pay you your dues. I'm not going to hold your hand. That was great with me because I just want to be left alone. I just needed a place to work out you know, my stress, frustration, and energy, you know, take advantage of anything that was negative in my life to build myself better up, you know, and uh, behave. Mitchell tells me his initial impression of Chapel and of Iron World. Ladies' man, you know, he was smooth, he was nice. He had every, all the equipment that you would need, okay. But it was... It just had a good feel. You know, the Rocky Balboa feel before Rocky Balboa. All right. You know, you had wood floors. You had, you know, free weights. You had machines. 
Uh, nobody messed with you. If you grunt or sweat, you know, ain't nobody gonna look at you and give you a problem. There was nothing in there to give me a negative feel. Chapel seemed to like Mitchell and would eventually ask if he'd be interested in teaching martial arts at the gym. While the two got along, Mitchell was still cautious. After all, he had by this point become convinced that there were Gwinnett County police officers involved in drug trafficking and possibly even murder. But he had no idea how far into the ranks that corruption reached and how many officers could be involved. But Steve Mitchell had no idea what he'd gotten himself into with his investigation and his surveillance. Or how much his membership at Iron World might really be worth to Michael Chappell. And how drastically his life was about to change. And it all began with a bag full of cash. Let's find out if he's a good guy or bad guy. So I come in with $40,000. Says, look at this. <laughs> Just poured it out on his desk. In the Land of Lies is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was written and reported by me, Sean Kipe, and I wrote and performed the original music score. Story editor is Jason Hoke, and executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Sound engineering by Shane Freeman. Creative producer is Henry Ball, and you can find Henry's book, Michael Chapel, at storiedpress.store. For updates about this and all of my podcasts, follow me on social media at Sean Kipe. If you like the show, tell your friends and leave a review. And as always, thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.